Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Corngut. I am a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Available now from Dread, Val. Finn, a wanted criminal, hides out with an escort named Val, a demon. Val offers to make his problems disappear if he follows her rules. She has been expecting him all along, and it won't be easy to escape Val's dungeon. Val is out now everywhere you buy or rent movies, and on Blu-ray November 2nd. Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Halloween is Cancelled, our mini-series within Development Hell, documenting five unmade, fairly outrageous Halloween sequels. Today, we are tackling Halloween 6, a.k.a. Halloween 666, The Origin, a.k.a. Quentin Tarantino's Halloween 6, question mark. We have a very, very special returning guest today. We have Jinx with us again. Uh, Jinx is a writer over at Bloody Disgusting. He is a podcaster. Jason, aka Jinx, can you reintroduce yourself to the Development Hell audience? Even though I'm sure you don't need to, everyone remembers you, but I'd like a recap. One, thank you very much for having me back. Two, um, yeah, I uh, I write for Bloody Disgusting. I have a handful of uh, columns there, including Phantom Limbs, which uh, 
you know, delves into unmade movies and whatnot. It's kind of my baby. Uh, that's, that's the, my, you know, my favorite column out of all the ones that I write. And uh, as you noted, I am a podcaster. I have a podcast called Scream Addicts, which is currently kind of on the last leg of its special project called Hammer Pub, wherein uh, co-hosts Paul Farrell and Ali Chapel and I, we, uh, you know, we have a few drinks and we provide running commentaries for Hammer Horror Films. And uh, other than that, I am, uh, I'm just excited to be back. We are so excited that you're back. Honestly, we kind of wish we could have you on every episode. You are truly the development hell aficionado, kind of like celeb of the internet. Yeah, we're big fans of everything you do. We try to keep up to date with Phantom Limbs, stealing all sorts of information for this episode. Um, And I do kind of feel like we're kind of like this yin and yang of the unmade horror movie universe. And I think that's really beautiful. I approached you to be in this Halloween is Cancelled miniseries. And I asked you which um, unmade Halloween project would you want to talk about? And right away you said Halloween 6. So I'm wondering, why Halloween 6? Why unmade Halloween 6? What draws you to this super bizarre topic? So if I recall correctly, you offered me uh, a couple of options. And mm-hmm. I, I looked them over and I was like, okay, these would these would be good. But can we uh, can we please do Halloween 6 instead? I yeah, Halloween Six is an important movie for me in uh, in that it's the film that kind of really opened my eyes to the idea of alternate cuts and unmade films. You know, if we can cast all the way back to the mid '90s, long before you know the the you know back when the internet was in its infancy, you know there was no social media aside from hopping onto like message boards on horror websites and whatnot if you wanted to get your fix and. Uh, other than that, you just had the news that you would read in Fangoria if you were a horror fan as to what exactly was happening in the genre at the time. And being a relatively new fan, my my first ever issue, the uh, when I started collecting Fangoria in earnest, it was number 151. And there was this little sidebar that talked about <laughs> this, this cut of Halloween 6 that was making the rounds called the producer's cut. That was kind of, you know, making its way around conventions on bootleg VHSs and whatnot that basically held a completely different version of the film. And this uh, sidebar detailed what all those differences were. And to like 14-year-old me, it was mind-blowing that there was a completely different version of the film out there. You know, keep in mind, I I grew up on VHS. DVD was still in the future at this point. The notion of being able to see deleted scenes and alternate endings and alternate cuts of movies and whatnot, it was just, you know something I had no frame of reference for. So that was sort of the movie that kind of opened my eyes to that. And then on top of that, you know, reading uh, more about Halloween six, I found out that, you know, there were going to be different versions of it. You know, there was the Phil Rosenberg script. There was uh, potentially going to be a Tarantino Halloween six. And again, that's, I think that's really where the bug bit me initially, uh, you know, when it comes to movies that never were, you know, uh, that, that's sort of what set my mind reeling the first time. And uh, as a result, you know, Halloween 6 has always been kind of a, uh, you know, I'm kind of a softie for it. I, I will admit I didn't really care for the movie when I first caught it as a teen, but eventually I came around on it. And I, I will admit the movie that we have now, both theatrical and, uh, you know, producers cut, I kind of love them both. Oh, I I love them both, too. Yeah, you couldn't have picked a a more appropriate topic for this podcast and uh, for Halloween movie in in general. It is, okay, Halloween 6, the unmade versions, and the actual released version are the most chaotic installment of all the Halloweens by (laughs) far. 
And I would say probably the most troubled of all the Halloween production histories by far, which makes it just like a chef's kiss topic for this podcast. I'm going to give a little bit of information on the Halloween 6 we all love and know before we get into talking a little bit more about why we love or or don't love that sequel. So Halloween 6, directed by Joe Chappelle and written by Daniel Farrens, was released on September 29th, 1995. It was made for a $5 million budget and raked in about $15 million, which is not bad. General feelings about this strange little movie. You kind of were, were hinting to it, but what's your overall relationship with Halloween 6? Well, again, you know, I... <laughs> This is kind of funny. This is going to be embarrassing, but what the hell? We're uh, we're here to tell the truth. I grew up, uh, the first Halloween that I ever saw was Halloween 5 uh, on, it wasn't even VHS. It was like pay-per-view. And uh, I watched it over and over again. And admittedly, I, I think every boy of a certain age who, who especially burgeoning horror fans, if they got <laughs> Halloween 5, like, you know, around 9 or 10, we had a crush on Daniel Harris. Like, that's just, you know. Of course. And, um, you know, I, I love that movie. I backtracked and watched Halloween four and, uh, I just, I loved that story, you know, and I love the Jamie Lloyd story and Mm -hmm. I loved the mystery of the man in black. And so I always wanted to know who in the hell the man in black was, but unfortunately that answer wouldn't come for a very long time. And, uh, by the time that Halloween six came out, I backtracked and watched, you know, one, two, three, which I loved at the time, all the way back then, you know, I'll be hipstery about it. I was first, damn it. You I like that movie. And, um, you know, I, I could not wait to see six when it turned out that it was finally coming out. And, uh, I remember I went opening weekend. It was a sleepy Sunday. I caught a matinee and, um, here's this character that I loved that I was genuinely invested in as a fan being played by a different actor, uh, not knocking J.C. Brandy. I think she actually does a very good job in the opening of the film. But, you know, it's a different actor. And she is unceremoniously killed in the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, which is a recurring thing mm-hmm. in the Halloween franchise. You know, Laurie, how many times has she been off unceremoniously? Um, <laughs> you, you have our lead, Rachel, from Halloween 4, just, you know, off in the first 15 that minutes. That was rude. That was, just, that was not okay. Yeah, and now we have, you know, we have little Jamie Lloyd, grown up, pregnant, and I don't even want to think about that, and then she is shoved onto, like, this farm implement, whatever the hell it is, and she is torn up like any old victim in a Friday the 13th movie, and I gotta say... It's horrible. Yeah, and plus, you know, it, it probably didn't do the movie any favors with me that... You know, seeing on like horror movie message boards and Fangoria letters pages, people bashing the living hell out of the movie. And so I'll admit, I was I was kind of a snob about number six for a while. I didn't care for it. And admittedly, I kid you not, it depressed me. A film, a fictional character's death depressed me for a <laughs> couple of days. I remember, God bless her, Ms. Ruggiero, uh, my, my, what was it? She would have been my third period Spanish teacher. Uh, she asked me, of course, we all had Spanish names at the time. And I just remember staring, you know, off into the distance in one class, probably a few days. It was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday after I got Very Laurie Strode of you. Yeah. And she, uh, she's just like, Javier, que lastima. <laughs> you know, and just asking, like, what, what's wrong? And I was just like, oh, um, uh, a character that I really liked in a series of movies died. 
And she just kind of stared at me and realized that she would never ask me what the problem was ever again. <laughs> no, she regretted it. <laughs> but, but you know, like I, I, I eventually kind of softened on it. I remember buying, um, oh, what was it? A Brother Kane's album that had the song And Fools Shine On. Mm-hmm. on it and i listened to that over and over uh right before halloween h2o came out i finally found this website called video junkie which was amazing they had everything back in the day before dvds if you could imagine a time when you couldn't easily get a hold of argento or fulci films or various japanese horror flicks or really anything video junkie had your back they would actually have these vhs pulls from japanese laser discs with annoying subtitles and whatnot and even though I was, you know, I didn't have a whole hell of a lot of money at the time. I was just a teenager, but I could hop onto that website and read these synopses of all of these crazy sounding movies that were unlike mm-hmm. anything I was getting out of American cinema. And so for that reason alone, Video Junkie was the best. But I did eventually buy a VHS copy of The Stendhal Syndrome, uh, the Argento film, before it was ever available in the U.S. because I thought Fangoria made it sound amazing. And I do love that movie. And I bought the producer's cut of Halloween 6. Oh. It arrived the day that Halloween H2O hit theaters. And it came in the mail. I cracked it open. And I was able to do the best double feature ever by watching the producer's cut of 6 in this smeary, terrible, like fourth generation VHS copy of the movie. And it was... It was the most exciting thing ever. And then immediately I go from that to watching H2O, you know, on a 40 foot screen in widescreen, like 35 millimeter. And uh, no, eventually I came around on six and I got to the point where, you know, I didn't even feel guilty about it anymore. It was no longer a guilty pleasure. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to take up for this movie. I think it's fantastic. I love what it does with the mythology. I love that it takes big swings. I love that. You know, it, it's just bold at a point in the series where it should probably be lazy and just rehash all that's come before. And it mm-hmm. doesn't do that, you know? And uh, yeah, so I so I dig it. No matter, I, I know that a lot of people will sort of excuse their fandom of the movie by saying, well, you know, the producer's cut, sure. You know, which I love the producer's cut and I do think it is superior. But you know what? I'll go ahead and say it. I think the theatrical cut is a lot of fun too. I prefer the theatrical cut, if I'm going to be honest with you. I saw the producer cut in theaters, like, I'm going to say four or five years ago. I don't think I liked it as much, if I'm going to be fully honest with you. Yeah, I'm going to age myself a little bit here. So I was very young when I saw Halloween 6 for the first time. uh, And it was the first Halloween movie I'd ever seen. I'd rented it with my dad. I was just getting into horror. I was just allowed to be getting into horror. And we finally, I don't know why it took us so long to get to the Halloween franchise, but we like rented the most recent, I'm assuming, Halloween movie. And it happened to be that one. And we watched it knowing nothing about the series at all. And yeah, at that first Jamie death where she gets like absolutely horrifyingly mangled by farm equipment, my dad was like, no, we're turning this off. So <laughs> I, we didn't get to finish it. And and because of that scene, I think he was under the impression that like these movies were like ch- like saw-level, violent, horrible, and disgusting based on that first kill. And it is shocking, I still think, to this day. Maybe it's because of my nostalgia for it, but I, I still think that's a pretty unnecessarily brutal kill. It's, um, it's crass, you know? It, it's, it's Yes, crass is a good word. It, it's It's rotten. 
Uh, I had a guest use that word not long ago, and I have to say it forever. Andy Scott. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a rotten moment. So then it was a really long time before we even rented the very first one. Um, and then I finally got into my Halloween journey from there. But yeah, we had a bit of a a, a slow start based on Halloween 6. And uh, yeah, it, it gave me a very strange sort of stunted intro to the series. I also love this film. I have to say I oscillate on my feelings about Halloween 6. I go from thinking it's trash to thinking it's really good and fun. And I rewatched it this weekend. And I have to say, I officially am on the side of loving it again. It is silly. It is genuinely scary in parts. It is absolutely outrageous. It's everything that a late, like a sixth film in a, in a franchise should be. The Druid stuff, you know. But I I love it for who it is. And also, what's the name of that older lady that gives the spiel about Sam Hain? She's cool. Oh, uh, Mrs. Blankenship. So yeah, I, I have to say Halloween Sex is definitely in my good books right now. Although, stop doing our heroines so dirty, Halloween franchise. You gotta stop doing this to me. Well, I will say, I will give the movie props too. I think it works so well because it had a really solid foundation with Daniel Farron's script. You could tell that it was written by a true fan of the franchise who had tried to tie together all these disparate elements and, you know, was diving deep in, mm-hmm. uh, into the mythology that was even presented, not in the movies, but in the, uh, the original novelization of the first film written by Curtis Richards. There's the six page prologue. I don't know if you've ever read it. If not, I will send mm-hmm. you snaps of it because I think you would love it. It opens like hundreds of years ago with a Celtic princess being murdered by a jilted lover or not even a jilted lover, like um, uh, kind of a a guy named Enda who was infatuated with her and she and her, you know, uh, lover as it were, you know, her, uh, her husband to be basically do this guy dirty. And um, so on the night of their wedding, their celebration, there's a big bonfire. Their entire tribe is dancing around the fire. Everyone's having a fun time. And Enda pulls a knife and murders both she and her husband in front of the entire, you know, Celtic clan. And so as a result, to get even with him, um, the high priest basically curses Enda um, for, and his bloodline for all time. And then the book, the novelization, basically makes it seem as though this curse followed one specific bloodline, which obviously turns out to be the Myers bloodline. And so you have kind of like the Mrs. Blankenship equivalent at the beginning of that novelization talking about how, uh, you know, Michael's grandfather, you know, there were issues with him when he had gone silent and, you know, horrible things, some uh, nameless, mm-hmm. horrible thing had happened. And uh, so you get the idea that what is driving Michael in that first story, at least according to the novelization, is the result of like a Celtic curse. And so I love that Farron's actually plucked that idea out of the novelization and wove it into the fabric of his film sequel. I think that's really neat. And it kind of, it kind of brings it closer to Halloween three in a way too, but um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. And then Stonehenge. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get the feeling too, like um, I know that a lot of people aren't necessarily enamored with Joe Chappelle's direction in the film. And I get that. I actually think he does a pretty solid job, but I will say this. I don't know if it was his call. I don't know if it was Farron's suggestion. I don't know if it was somebody else. I don't know if it was coincidence, but I will say I do appreciate the fact that not only does the movie nod to, you know, the previous films and classic horror and some of the setups and whatnot feel very classy and classic in a way, but they cast 
a couple of actors who had been in previous horror classics. The uh, the young nurse who actually spirits Jamie to, well, brief safety at the very beginning, you know, who was mm-hmm. uh, part of the cult. She was in the uh, the horror classic, the 70s horror classic, Audrey Rose. And then you have uh, Mama Strode oh. being played by the woman who was in um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, the original 70s TV movie. So I, I just think it has a really interesting pedigree. I think there is a respect that Halloween six shows not just its own franchise, but the genre. And, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people don't really discuss or want to see in the movie. I I think it's easy to lob stones at it because it's a wonky sixth entry that's easily overlooked now that we have these big prestige Blumhouse universal movies. But again, damn it, you know, I'll, I'll be the guy who uh, shakes my fist and uh, defends the movie and calls it good. Actually, damn it. Yeah. It it is good. I had no idea that the Celtic origins go all the way back to the first film's novelization. That really surprises me. Uh, we'll get to it eventually. I forget which version of the Halloween Six uh, origin script also like basically recreates that scene. Yes, oh, I think it is the 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 six 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 origin one where they 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 transport themselves through VR into a Celtic, like a thousand years BC moment. And they sort of have a very similar sequence. Yeah. The, uh, the VR thing in the Phil Rosenberg script is a trip. (laughs) It's so weird. I can't lie to you in my post resurrection haze. I kind of thought it was funny and worth, worth looking at this VR stuff, which we'll get to get to in just a, a little bit, but Yeah, I think that sums up my feelings about Halloween 6 in general. Um, If you don't mind, why don't we jump ahead into the version that we never got to see, one of which, titled Halloween 666 The Origin, uh, written by Phil Rosenberg. So would you agree that this was one of the most troubled Halloween productions in history? I think it has to be the most troubled like from what i've read there is no like i didn't even understand what (laughs) what the film was really until i really started diving deep into it for the longest time i was under the impression that again i was telling you about my phantom limbs master list like halloween six was at the top because you know it's an important movie to me hell i mean there probably wouldn't be a phantom limbs if it wasn't for halloween six in the first place And so to me, I'd always heard about this Tarantino Halloween six that Scott Spiegel was going to direct. So to me, I'd always thought that it was one project, you know, one thing. Mm -hmm. And what I realized after uh, I was lucky enough to interview Scott Spiegel and I did some, you know, digging. And what I realized is, is that it wasn't one project. It was kind of like three projects that were ultimately kind of Frankenstein together before the entire thing fell apart. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and what I found was if you want to go ahead and dive into it. Mm -hmm. So there was an idea, you know, after Halloween five had come out, Mustafa Akkad, who was the, you know, the godfather of the, uh, the Halloween franchise, he started casting about for potential writers for a Halloween six, not long after the fifth film had come out. And one of the writers that he approached was Quentin Tarantino, who at that point had written the spec screenplays, uh, true romance and natural born killers, neither of which had been made at that point. And so 
Tarantino was approached and, you know, ultimately it didn't happen. But, um, yeah, even the fact that Tarantino was considered by Mustafa Akkad, you know, on the strength of the spec scripts, I think is pretty cool. Um, but, you know, in, in an interview with, uh, Michael Hoffman for Consequence of Sound, Tarantino said that, uh, basically he knew coming in the pitch on Halloween six, he knew that he would have to sort of account for the big mystery of Halloween five, which was whoever the hell the man in black was, which nobody knew, you know, it was just a mystery Mm -hmm. that had no answer at that point. And apparently he never figured it out or he never cared to, he didn't know who he was. But the only thing that Tarantino said that he knew about his take on the movie was that in the first 20 minutes of the film, Basically, the man in black, who he describes as being kind of a Lee Van Cleef dude, which I love, uh, the man in black and Michael would just be traveling Route 66, stopping at like, you know, coffee shops and the like, with Michael killing everybody in sight, just, uh, you know, leaving a trail of bodies in their wake. And uh, essentially, I mean, it kind of sounds like the opening of Natural Born Killers, only with the man in black and Michael. And I kind of love that idea, but. If for whatever reason it just never happened, so mm-hmm. after it also kind of gives me a little bit of from dusk till dawn. Yeah, oh, totally. At least cool. the first half of it. Yeah, and I mean, my God, how cool would that have been? You know, could you imagine oh, like so cool a Tarantino scripted Halloween at that point in his career? Like it, it, it oh God, it would have been amazing. But yeah, it yeah, but it didn't happen. And so they eventually, uh, Akkad had drafted a writer named Phil Rosenberg. So it seems like Phil Rosenberg, uh, the brother of, I believe, Scott Rosenberg, who is a working yes, screenwriter uh, in Hollywood. Things to do in Denver when you're dead, which is great. Yes. And I think he did the new Jumanji films, too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow. So he, yeah, working guy. Um, but uh, Phil had never written anything before, was not in the union, had nothing under his belt, was just like a big horror fan at the time. Don't know how exactly he got involved with the Akkads, but I guess he had a pitch that they liked good enough, and they sort of clutched onto it for a really long time. Yeah, but this guy was not a professional. He hadn't worked on anything, and he was just like a big horror fan. And reading the script that he wrote, it kind of makes sense. It it feels a little bit fan fiction-y in a way. It, You know, it's funny that you mention that, because I will say that impresses me then, because... On a technical level, I do think it's a pretty solid script. I think where it fails is, I think it fails the characters and it fails the world that's been presented to us in Halloween up until that point. Like, Mm -hmm. you you know, by having like Lovecraftian portals and VR trips into the past and shit like that. like very weird. Uh, but should we should we dive into like a synopsis of what it would have been? I would love it. Do you would you be able to like give us a a bit of a synopsis on this film? With with a deep breath. Yes, I can. So, there was a draft that I read. It was dated April 6th, 1994. It's titled Halloween 666: The Origin. Deep breath. Uh the lead is a character named Dana Childress. She is a 22-year-old NBC news reporter from Chicago who is um She's given an assignment to travel to Haddonfield with her, uh, <laughs> with like a news crew and her older colleague and potential love interest, even though the man is in his 40s. Uh, his name is uh, Robert Clifton, and their job uh, is to, but their job is to cover the first Halloween celebration the town would have had in a half decade since the events of Halloween 5. Now, that's, that's basically story one. Then we're introduced to... Uh, <laughs> we're introduced to 
Tremblin' Tommy Doyle, which is maybe the worst wrestling nickname ever, uh, yeah. who is described as 29, tall, lean, and wild-haired. Um, and, I mean, much like in the eventual film, Tommy is portrayed as a Myers obsessive, you know, collecting uh, <laughs> clippings and books and photos on the Halloween murders. And uh, <laughs> in, in a cutting-edge twist, Tommy also uses a virtual reality apparatus to project himself into realistic scenes of Celtic Whoa. sacrifices. Wild. Yeah. That was a... Uh, <laughs> That's a shame. But, um, yeah, like a Ouija v- VR headset vibe. What the hell? Like, you know, it's it's so mm-hmm, strange. It's weird. such a weird choice. But um, I guess they were very mystified by the internet in 1994. They just, it was very new. It, yeah, but what's crazy about a lot of those movies back in the 90s is that you're right. They do seem mystified by it. But they also have some pretty definite concrete ideas on how it all works. And then you watch those movies back then and it's like, no, you had no idea what the hell this was. Like, why? No, why? No, no. why they weren't we? even and they, they didn't they didn't even like crack open a book. They're like, no one will ever know. <laughs> we know now, guys. We do. I, I do love the Lawnmower Man, but it's 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 a tough watch at times. But do you love the Lawnmower Man too? No, no. Oh, well, I, I will say this: I uh, I was excited to see that movie back when it came out, and uh, a couple of years ago, after the Scream Factory edition of the first movie came out, I rewatched the director's cut. Still think it holds up. I really do love that movie. But you know what? I went ahead and bought the DVD for the sequel, which I think is called Job's War or something like that. Hell yeah. I watched the first 15 minutes of it and I actually genuinely found it to be unwatchable. Like there, there is no understanding of film language to be found in that movie. I just (laughs) could not do it, but I've only heard bad things. Oh, it's so bad. Uh, But love Matt Frewer, but he deserved better. Um, (laughs) Tommy in the script early on when we, uh, when we meet him, he even visits, um, he visits Sam Loomis like in this really early scene. And we find out the poor Sam, he's housed in a mental ward after having uh, suffered two heart attacks. Um, and it was honestly, finally, cause this man was unwell for the last few films. He, okay? he, I, I would like to think that Rosenberg was trying to do Donald Pleasance a solid by only having him pop up in one screw, you know, one scene in the script. Uh, and really honestly, Loomis is only there to sort of pass the reins of the franchise onto Tommy, you know, Tommy mm-hmm. becomes uh, Loomis 2.0. And then, uh, which you I kind of so- like, I do too. I, I think that yeah. would have been the way to go. But that's that's kind of like the second leg uh, or the second story, as it were, in Halloween 666. And then the third leg is Michael himself, who, and I like this. And I understand if people would hate this or find it funny, but I think there's a way to make this idea work. Michael is reintroduced in the screenplay as a homeless man sleeping in an alleyway next to a dumpster. And there's a sequence that follows this group of assholes dressed like uh, clockwork orange droogs who decide to celebrate oh, the holiday. Oh, they're dressed like that? I, yes. I, I didn't... Okay, that's heavy-handed. They are literally like it's Halloween and they're dressed like, yeah, all of the milk-slugging uh, droogs, you know, like a Malcolm McDowell led in the clockwork orange. And uh, they decide to celebrate the holiday by viciously beating this guy who they expect to be a common homeless man. And... Uh, we then enter into a point of view shot, much like the uh, you know the original seventy eight films opening, where he basically murders all of the men pretty horrifically in the alley, and then um, you know Michael pops on over to a homeless shelter in search of a bed, and he sees a TV promo of Dana's station, you know, doing the uh, 
the return of Halloween to Haddonfield. And, uh, you know, I believe it says in the script, it's quoted as saying, uh, he storms out of the shelter. You know, it's pretty much on yeah, at he, that point. He, she emotional. Yeah. And then, uh, and that's it. Break someone's hand, I feel like, in that scene, because they try to change the channel, which feels rude. <laughs> you don't, you don't fuck with Michael's viewing, you know? Um, no, 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 no. But that's it. That's that's pretty much the setup. You have those three subplots that eventually dovetail with one another. And, you know, I mean, Dana and her crew pursue the story. Tommy sort of rages against the town's upcoming Halloween celebration. And then Michael just glides around in the background until he's ready to strike. And I will say, there is pretty early on, there's this, it's pretty goofy, but it's a still pretty fun scene. Michael goes to the small shop and he, he he murders the owner in this very uh, Friday the 13th style kill. He uses a uh, barbecue fork and he plunges it into the back of the guy's head Sick. and out of his mouth. And, you know, the poor man's dentures sort of hang on the tines of the barbecue fork, you know? <laughs> oh, but, um, but it's here. The reason he went there, you know, it's here where he's reunited with the, uh, the shape mask, you know, the Shatner mask that he's become uh, kind of synonymous mm-hmm. with. And um, <laughs> there's a quote directly out of the script where Michael actually mask shops. And I kind of love it. He uh, it, it's, and I quote, he picks up a Freddy Krueger mask, casts it aside, picks up a Jason mask, casts it aside. At last, he pulls down one of the signature Michael masks. He tears off the price tag and puts it on. He turns to us. The fit is still good after all these years. Michael Amble... <laughs> I can't even say this with a straight face. Michael Ambles out of the store. Party time. <laughs> oh, gosh. It Let's, says party time. And it is, because it's party time. So many... Ref- like it's, it's cringy when things reference the real horror universe that we live in it, it i yeah yeah this I movie do. does this a bunch like there's real hellraiser references there's real friday the 13th references just allude to it or or make it sort of like something different when you when you really touch base with our reality of franchises you lose me right away i do love that michael kind of pulls a goldilocks in the store and finds the porridge that's just right with his shit that's mask, true you know and he is the OG. Like this is this is the guy. This happens in the Etchison Halloween Four too, where uh, there's all of those different horror movies playing on the three drive-in screens. There's like a sequence where he's being like where where Jason Voorhees is being projected onto Michael Myers as Michael Myers kills someone, and it's always kind of alluding to the fact that Michael is the OG, and these guys kind of swept in afterwards, which is true. They're pretenders, you know. I do love the Etchison script for, you know, there's a sequence where Michael is, is he like 12 feet or is he like 40 feet? It's something crazy. I know, it's 12 feet. I always thought it was like 40 feet, but it's only 12 feet. Well, I love that idea simply because, uh, you know, there was the idea that Michael in that is kind of like a tulpa. You know, he is created by Mm -hmm. thought. He's created by the fears of the town. And I I remember reading a review of the script once where they were like – and this was ages ago when it was finally unearthed. And they were like, yeah, for some reason, Michael grows to be like 12 feet. And it's like, well, that's not arbitrary. You know, they're all <laughs> watching, you know, these slashers on a big screen. So all of a sudden, these slashers, the, this killer becomes larger than life. So, of course, Michael would be 12 feet tall at that point. You know, I have oh, yeah. no idea if they would would have been able to pull that off in that movie, like visually. But oh, God, no. I would I would have been up for. I love that drunk. script though. I have to say, all of these unmade 
scripts that I've read for the series, except for this one, have been really good, have been better than the things that actually got produced at the end of the day, which is not surprising. 100%, yeah. And um, and this one, you know, it's... Um, it it Yeah, it, it has its problems, but some of it's okay. It's a okay. silly girl. It's a silly bee, but um, it has a lot to love. Something that I was hoping you'd be able to expand upon is the Judith Myers portal into another dimension. Do you think you could give us a bit of a seminar on, on that plot of the story? Because I'd love to know more. Seminar? No, because I don't know what the hell is going on there. But I can tell you what happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, good enough. As a reader, I can tell you what I think happens. Uh, basically, in the strangest twist possible, Tommy's housemates steal the headstone of Judith Myers. Why would you do that? Uh, that's like... Mistake. You, you don't steal Would the headstone. Not, oh, I guess not Not a real dead person, actually. Yeah. Well, not a real dead person, but in the world of Halloween, if you're going to steal a headstone, don't steal the headstone of the sister of Michael fucking Myers. That's like, you know, you, you don't Sounds stand smart. in a mirror and say Candyman five times, and you don't steal the shape's sister's headstone. That's two, two things you don't do. Um, but they did it. They did it. And um, as a result, when they do that, Somehow, some way, it tears a hole in the fabric of reality, leading to another world. And um, yeah, yeah, there are like, um, I, I think at one point there are tentacles glimpsed inside of the other. Uh, oh, really? Like I, I definitely heard about the tentacle stuff. I, I thought maybe that was in like a later Spiegel, like, like a. Like a touch-up version, but was the, that the, the tentacles were Spiegel, in this version? I think I, you know, I might be conflating two. Things. I know there's so uh, many, there's so many versions of this project in the world. He, I know that Spiegel didn't want to do that, but I think he's the one who said that. Now that you mentioned that, I think he's the one who said that there were tentacles, but in the Rosenberg draft that I read, there weren't. But there is like. Yes. A light play, like there's like an opening, like a portal or whatever. And then from there, you know, we, uh, I think Clifton gets killed by Michael. The man in mm. black is revealed to be a, oh he's my revealed God. to be Father oh Carpenter, who okay. sounds. Okay, yeah. Yeah, like, this is important. I don't understand this. Like, it, okay, so he's revealed to be Father Carpenter, but everything about his description and his dialogue, it sounds very much like Reverend Jackson Sayre from Halloween 4. Which it, I think it is supposed to be. <laughs> I think it is supposed to be him. But why did they call him Father Carpenter? And why because does he go? They're stupid, and they what? made a mistake. Well, I was going to say, why does he go from being a reverend to like to being uh, a priest to being a priest? Like it just—it's like I, I think a, he just didn't know there was a difference between the two things. To be honest, Rosenberg. I hate to say it. I think that's it. It's just like, and eh. I wouldn't either. Listen, we're Jews. What the hell? How are we supposed to know this stuff? And he didn't have the internet. Can we leave Rosenberg alone? Sorry, Priest, no. Reverend, uh, whatever they're all the same. <laughs> whatever. Um, it is a fun character, and it is one that I'm kind of like, no, it should not have come back. He's very funny in, for, in part four, the priest that gets drunk in the car with Dr. Loomis, and then Dr. Loomis is like, I like you. You're like me. Crazy. Um, I'd love to see a road movie with those two. The kinship that Loomis finally finds with another fucking batshit insane Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it, the first time we see him smile without, like, mania. Yeah, it's well, like there was he, a little mania. He feels he found a brother at once, uh, you know. And plus, <laughs> yeah. what's crazy is I'd like to think that somewhere out in the ether, there is an entire franchise where Reverend Jackson P. Sayer is hunting his own evil, <gasps> and who's He's like Michael. Got his own. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God, he, 
Yeah, he's yes, yes, I love it. I love, I love the song, you know. Oh, we're gonna find the river. I dig it. Uh, he's Carmen Philby. He is he is a gem in that film. Oh my god, you know your shit, Jinx. That's <laughs> so impressive that you had that at the go. But he, but and that's part of the reason I dislike the uh, the Rosenberg draft is that they take this character who is very obviously, even though he's crazy, he is obviously kind of a force for good, who is yeah. hunting yeah. evil, not to be a part of it, to obviously demolish it. And here it turns him into just a weird, goony fucking guy. And it's like, why? Why do that? Um, it, why turn him into, you know, a villain? Why turn him into... It just it doesn't bad make writing. sense. That's why. Bad, bad writing. Also, calling him Father Carpenter is the most cringe move of all time. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And yeah, and now he's evil and, like, is trying to... I don't know. I don't really understand his purpose other than it's that it's bad what is his deal what is what is his objective in this in the script in your opinion well that's a great question um i don't think it's one that the (laughs) script cares to answer um maybe rosenberg thought he would get the gig to write halloween 7 to explain that shit at some point but it never happened Mm -hmm. Um, no 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 he sure didn't you know what Um, else is crazy tell me dana is revealed to be michael's long lost Third sister. So this is Again. a family that continues to expand. Uh, we, we got... 23 and me, honey. <laughs> we, we have in the second act, in the back half of the second act, we have Tommy using his VR rig and a Salwin program, uh, like you noted, like a high-tech Ouija board to show Dana Michael's origins. That Again, you know, going back to the, uh, the original novelization, I... See, here's the thing. I don't believe, I can't believe that Rosenberg was such a fan that he went back and read the novelization that Curtis Richards wrote because it doesn't what But he it's wrote the about, same thing. It, it's the same setting, but it's a different like, I, I don't know. It's a thousand it's it's one thousand BC in a Celtic village where a priest curses a king because he wouldn't sacrifice himself. It, yeah, it's a little different story wise, but well, but there's so much that are the same. It, it, it totally like I think it's definitely the same setting. Obviously, you know Rosenberg probably saw the second film, heard the the name Sam Hain, and so oh and yeah, was that like, explains. Okay, well, you know I can I can do something with this. Whereas what I love about Curtis Richards' novelization is that in his origin, he's able to find all the things that are now hallmarks uh, with slasher films. We have young people. You know, we have sexual desire, you know, we have like uh, celebrations, Mm -hmm. you know, we have like, uh, and weirdly enough, even though this wasn't the case in Halloween, it becomes a case in later slasher films. We have a slasher to be a burgeoning killer who is humiliated um, and that drives his mania later on. So whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, what Rosenberg does is kind of like, you know, it's just, it's kind of dull, you know, it it doesn't work as well for me because. And it's in. It's in Ouija VR in 1994, because it would have been... Yeah, because he wrote this in 1994. Ouija VR in 1994. I say it with attitude. I don't mean to. I love it. You should. No, please do. No, no, (laughs) I support it. I like it. It definitely, definitely would have been hated enormously from 1995 till 2020. People would yeah. not have liked Well, that. not only that, but you have Michael getting tricked. Okay, not only do you open a portal into another world, but yeah. you have Dana. You have 22-year-old Dana 
Dana. Tricking Michael by leading him into a cemetery and tricking him into falling into the otherworld fissure at his sister's grave. Portal closes, taking Michael to hell. Dana and Tommy survive. And then Father Carpenter slash Reverend Jack laughs to himself at the end, which kind of clues us in that, uh, you know, Michael Michael isn't going to be gone for very long. There's this. Yeah, because they had to do it by 1 a.m. How dare. Okay, so in case people aren't totally up to speed with the true chaos outrageousness of this subplot, somehow when uh, Dana and Tommy. I think Dana goes into the VR back to the fucking 1000 BC. She discovers within there that Judith Myers's gravestone is this portal to the Celtic other worlds. And that the only way to get rid of Michael is to, yeah, send him through the portal back into Celtic other worlds. And then that would be the only way to save her life because otherwise he would relentlessly supernaturally keep going until he killed her and anyone else in the bloodline. What? <laughs> Sorry, what? Huh? But yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but I, I, I love it. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just felt like... No, no, please. No. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's all kind of terrible. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it should come as no surprise to anyone that uh, Mustafa Akkad read the script and is, I don't care if this story is apocryphal or not, I choose to believe it's true. When he finished reading the script, he threw it across the room. <laughs> I've heard it too. It has to be real. It has to be real because it's such an iconic Hollywood story. It's almost as... Were you the one... Okay, there's the story about James Cameron and his pitch for Aliens. Have you heard about this? Are you the one no, that informed no, me that no. it was a lie? Okay, someone informed me this was a lie. So this isn't true, but it's a it's an urban legend. That James Cameron went in to go pitch Alien 2 and all he did was he had a whiteboard and it said alien and then he added an s at the end and then like a like a line through it to show that it would make money. Okay, you know what? We're going to go ahead and print the legend on that one and say that that's true because it deserves <laughs> yeah. to be. It deserves it, to be true. <laughs> it's so good. And then yeah, but it's 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 not real but it's it's real. You know what I mean? I, I just choose to believe that after he did that, after he put the S and the two, you know, two we marks like, to make it a dollar sign, he should have just, just tapped the board and said, game changer. Bye. He drops the mic. Goodbye. <laughs> um, Something that interests... Okay, before, wait. Before I move on to the Gehenna behind the scenes of Halloween 6, I am... Okay, to wrap up on father carpenter saying it makes me want to die they had a character in halloween retribution called dr hill that worked other than the fact that it was a man come on guys dr hill is a woman get it together this anytime someone like names a character after a legacy horror director i want to slap them in the face i'm just going slap you no it's too obvious guys I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. no, yeah, we, we Halloween deserves a heroine named after Deborah Hill. Like it's it's long past time. Or even just Deborah would be great. Deborah would be an amazing Gen Z name. Bring they back sh- Deborah. I feel like it would be a cool name. The Halloween 18 series, they totally should have named the granddaughter Deborah. Like, come they on. They should have done a lot of things in Halloween 2018, actually. <laughs> um, I talk about it a lot. I have received uh, a listener feedback oh, that they get it that I don't like Halloween 2018, but you're going to hear about it because Halloween 2022 is about to come out and I get to review it for Dread Central. I'm not saying I made up my mind. I haven't seen it yet. Maybe I'll love it. 
It may be great. I, I hope that it is. I genuinely do because I'm a fan of the franchise and I'm always wishing it well. I will say this. <laughs> I am concerned that okay. every piece of marketing that I see from three minute long trailers to 20 second TV spots and everything in between for every new stitch of footage that I see, I have yet to see a single human being in any of those bits utter a line that doesn't sound like some grand dec- declaration. Like there, mm-hmm. there are no human beings speaking in this movie. Apparently everybody is like, no evil dies tonight. Let's hunt yeah. him down. It like is now. <laughs> yeah. It just, come on. Guys. I, I like, mean, listen, these are fair critiques. I would say that I'm okay with it. Um, I want it to be like back to, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 and the crappy like canon sequels where it stops trying so hard and you just give me a crappy Halloween sequel that I've been waiting so long to watch. It just, just, it can be fun. Just make it fun and scary. That's yeah, all it needs to be. Yeah, try so hard. And also it's so mask for mask these days. It's so like dudely with the guns and the action. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, everybody. No, um, I think this was necessary. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so Halloween 66 The Origin by Phil Rosenthal is... Burke. A ch- Burke, thank you. A messy nightmare, love it though. I was wondering, oh, did we talk about John Carpenter's bid to get in a Halloween 6? Because I don't think we did, and I kind of want to get it on the table. No, I didn't know he was ever attached to 6. I knew about yes, 4 yes, and yes, yes. 7. Oh, yeah, so I'm going to... I Hopefully I blow your mind with this one. So, okay, after Halloween 5... I believe this is the case. I could be wrong. I had waited too long to make a sixth film, and I believe the rights reverted. And so there was a bidding war to get the rights to continue the Halloween franchise. Akkad teamed up with Miramax so they could bid together and save some shekels. But someone else that was in the bidding war was John Carpenter. And John Carpenter had a pitch for Halloween 6, And there are quotes from him, I believe, in Fangoria back in the day. So it was legit. He wanted to send our dear friend Michael into space. Oh, I have heard of this. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Straight faced. Like, no humor, no, like, irony here. Um, He wanted to send Michael into space. He believed because it would take it in a whole new direction. True, literally. And, um, yeah, you could never come back. And I say, uh, say that to Leprechaun 5, because they did come back. I, I think he was just talking about the quality, like there's no coming back from that. Um, <laughs> That's true. You know, I, that... I choose to believe he was talking about space, that <laughs> there's no coming back from space, which I mean, there is, but I can't tell you the mechanics of that. The only thing I have to say to that is, uh, John. <laughs> John. John. Come on, John. John. He's probably it's probably trolling. He was probably it was probably like an ultimate troll move where he was like, "You did this to my franchise. Now I'm going to take a big dump on it." And I, ha I, ha ha, you. I do love that about Carpenter. There's this kind of Jekyll and Hyde thing with him. I I met him at a convention. <laughs> yeah. There was a long line. Uh, it wasn't too terribly long at the time, but I've seen massive lines for him. And I every person I know of who has met him, like at conventions, and I can say this was my experience and the experiences of everybody in front of me because I was watching to see what kind of dude he was like. Soft-spoken, completely gracious, very nice man, you know, complete gentleman. 
But then you get like interviews with him or so, yeah. and he seems like a grumpy old man. And I just, there's this Jekyll and Hyde thing that I kind of love with him where, you know, I believe that he might be trolling people when he talks about the uh, Michael and Space idea. You know, he, he woke up. I, I believe he would make it, but I do think there's a trolling vibe to it. Yes. You know what? Have him make Escape from Earth with Snake Plissken, round out that trilogy, and let one of Snake's obstacles be the shape in space. You know? <gasps> It rhymes. Yeah. I like that. Uh, And he did go on to make Ghosts of Mars not too long after that. So clearly he he had space on the brain. He did. He sure did. Ghosts of Mars, never seen it. Never will, probably. Not a bad concept. I only have one thing to say about Ghosts of Mars. John. 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 And Shocker. <laughs> hey, Shocker is good at least. <laughs> well, I know. I, Sh- wait I don't a second. Know I have something. Is, okay, you fooled me. Shocker is Wes Craven. Well done. You oh, no. Jo- well, I'm cutting that out. I can't look like a fool. <laughs> I can't portray. I can't be that much of a fool. I recently got a new comment. No. Uh, 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 what's it called where someone leaves a review on Apple I- iTunes? And it was three stars. And he just complained that I definitely got the, the year wrong to Jaws 3 and oh, that my geez. guest had it right and then I course corrected them back to wrong again and you know what that deserves a three star review sorry I be- I was belligerently wrong about Jaws 3 <laughs> uh, not not my least favorite movie guys not my least favorite movie uh, I will say that Jaws 3D is better than Jaws the Revenge so there's that I have never seen Jaws the Revenge but I'm so curious I have to see it at some point I did yeah so this episode was about Jaws 3 people 0 um, yeah, I remember. But I'm a I listener. Would, I told you. <laughs> I know. I can't believe it. I won't believe it. Who could listen? All of you do, and never stop. I'd love to see that, but I would love to see Jaws: The Revenge next summer. I'm gonna have to come back to that. Oh uh, well. Um, good luck. <laughs> I love the idea of a Jaws. Yes, I'm call, not a shark. Of a Jaws, like traveling hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of miles for revenge so beautiful it's like a reverse moby dick (laughs) when you get the chance when you watch that um atrocity of a film (laughs) make certain that you immediately follow it up with richard jenny's stand-up bit about that particular movie because it will have you in tears it is so excited now oh now i'm sad i have to wait all the way until summer because i refuse to watch jaws movies outside of summer because they're so good in the summer i don't know where you're at right now but i gotta tell you uh in the midwest from what i've heard and i can tell you for a fact in florida right now it, it still feels like summer so oh no global warming i'm sorry yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a stone throw away from Halloween, but it's 85 degrees, so what the fuck? It's hot here in Toronto, too, but you do have the leaves looking a little different, so visually you're getting the vibes. It doesn't feel like the Halloween season has begun in earnest yet. It, it feels like a lie, and I don't like it. I see. I don't know. How can you say that? Because we're both in the middle of our Halloween series, <laughs> is, and we have, I'm assuming, I can't speak for you, I can only imagine, been devouring so much Halloween content in the past month. I did, you know, I did rewatch Halloween 6 in advance of this chat, and that was the first Halloween movie that I've watched so far. So I'm, yeah, I'm ready. I'm, 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 I need to dive in. I need to, it's been about three years since I've done a full series rewatch, and I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm going to have to do that in the next week. I love that for you. I really do. It's just so we can get you to resurrection. I, I will go ahead and clue you in on something right now, just to spur on like part of our conversation for the hell of it. 
I have Halloween six running in the background right now. So uh, that's good podcasting. That's that's good journalism, actually. It's, it's a good trick. Looking at uh, looking at Jamie Lloyd's placental fluid as we speak. So um, oh, yeah, I like how. Okay, the scene in Halloween six where Tommy goes to the bus station and it's just first of all, there's just a baby in the basement screaming. Nobody cares. <laughs> and then there's also just this woman's blood and placenta fluid literally everywhere to the point where they come and collect it. And everyone's just like, eh, it's a bus station. Very outrageous. I just wanted to see the scene where, you know, somebody walked into that bathroom, like in a hurry to catch their train. They see this poor girl, like where there's like blood everywhere. And obviously something horrific has happened. And then they shrug and use the urinal anyway. You know, they that got things to do. such a, that's a bus station vibe, okay? That that you know what I'm making fun of the movie, but bus stations that is the energy of bus stations. Oh, it that's, totally is. It's, it's real. It's real. If somebody saw um, that, if somebody saw the kid like screaming like in a cabinet hidden away, they would the, shrug, piss, and then tell themselves, "Ain't none of my business." I mean, in Haddonfield, you know, you want to stick out of trouble. Um, yeah, absolutely. I have to say, I, I am making fun of it, but the first segment where she stops the truck and goes in to the to the bus stop or the bus station, really good, really spooky. It is no, it's there are sequences in this movie. Um, I mean, Michael um, killing Kara's mother, like stalking her around the house, you know, Ooh. like going inside and then meeting her like out in the yard, like that shot looking up and she's just like, yes, Michael, so and good. he's carrying an axe, and then you see the the whip of the axe and the blood spattering, the sheets fluttering in the wind, like it's beautiful. A, Provocative sequence. Uh, this movie, no bullshit, holds maybe one of the finest, I would say, among the finest five seconds in any slasher film, maybe any horror film ever. And I say that with a straight face. I mean it genuinely. It's also one of the greatest bits of performance that anybody ever gave Can in I any guess? horror film. Can Please. I guess? I'm going to get it wrong, but I had a similar reaction watching it this time around. So... My impulse is that I'm wrong, but I'm going to give it anyways, just in case I'm right. Paul Rudd, in front of, like, there's these beautiful orange lights and the trees outside before it starts raining blood. So that's my official guess. Okay, so that's a good one. And I'm actually, weirdly enough, close to that moment uh, in the film right now. He is, uh, I think Paul Rudd is genuinely great in this movie. And it is is a Paul Rudd moment, so you're close. Um, Oh, there is a sequence in the theatrical cut that I think is absolutely amazing. and Nobody talks about it. I, w- I would write articles about this one moment. There is a sequence where, okay, so I got to say, happening on screen right now is John Strode stalking through the house, asking where his dinner is. He is about three minutes away from getting fried in his basement. He's uh, good in I, this. I, I believe that that guy was real. The performance is fantastic. Yeah, I t- really good Twitter. I, I told you I rewatched this movie yesterday. I took the Twitter. I, I posted a pic of him and I noted that were it not for the fact that he was decapitated via electrocution, that dude would have been MAGA as hell. Oh, I'm sad that you took it that direction. Cause I was going to say, yeah, he's a piece of shit, but he's a daddy. It's kind of hot. Sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. He's, but he is. But he's mega as hell. There's no you, doubt about you it. You give him 20 years, that dude would have worn a red hat. Like, you oh, know. Oh, no. Well, he's certainly not nice to his family. So that's a, that's, you know, a step in the direction, I think. So. He's like, he's yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. 
He's like Biff from Back to the Future if you age him up a little bit and smack him in the face with a shovel a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, he is. Okay, well, character aside, kind of into him, kind of hot. Um, sure. But character, you know, here, no, of course, of course, I can't. I can't support that spousal and daughter abuse. It's terrible. It's so rude. He's a dick. He's a total dick. And he dies real bad slash good. But. And it's scary, a- too. Yeah, although it doesn't make any sense because nobody's head does that when you electrocute them. Like I wasn't looking. I, I I'm a I'm still a baby. These movies I've seen a thousand times. I don't look at the really gross scenes. What? I just can't. Yeah, I can't. I couldn't look at. I couldn't look at uh Jamie. I couldn't look at that one. I didn't look. I'm a bigger baby than prop. If you know me, you'll know because I'll watch a movie and fifty percent of it is me with my fingers and my ears rocking back and forth and my eyes closed. Why do I like horror? I don't know. I have okay, so what you need to do, you just need to sort of baby step your way toward watching harder stuff. Um, just <laughs> okay. So start with something not that bad. Um, there's a movie called a Serbian film. Just rent mm, it. Okay, I'm writing this down. Hold on, I'm writing it down. A Serbian. Yeah, film. Just, got it. Just got it. Give that one a shot. Got you know, it. keep your eyes open during the entire time. And I will say, okay, I will. I will. When, it's 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 gateway horror, right? It, totally. When you make it okay. to the end of that, you're going to be mm-hmm. able to watch anything. Trust me on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right. And you're talking about the American remake, of course. Oh God, no. There's there's no <laughs> such thing. There's no. Uh, there's We're no. Starring American... Little Liars. <laughs> there should be because there is. <laughs> there is, and it stars a Pretty Little Liar. Don't know how to say her name. All right, so I will uh, say John Strode does not give uh, one one of my favorite bits of performance in any horror film ever. But <laughs> oh, oh, Paul right, Rudd, right. Paul Rudd does, and uh, yours was a good guess. Okay. But actually, it's this moment in the theatrical cut only where Tommy is in the bowels of Smith's Grove. He finds Kara. He's trying to beat the door open with a fire extinguisher. And he senses something. And he turns. And there is the shape having just stepped out of a door, like his own room. Like he's just hanging in the basement of Smith's Grove as well, like lying on a cot when he's not busy killing people. Mm-hmm. And the shape turns and looks at him like, the fuck is that guy doing there for? Like what's he? What's he think he's funny? And funny, funny, funny. So Paul Rudd as Tommy Doyle. There's this amazing moment where he stands there staring at the shape, like in in abject horror, which is great. And then it turns into this movie where uh, this moment where he lets out this exasperated laugh. He just grins ear to ear yeah. and gasps yeah. and laughs, and it feels so real. real. It yeah, feels like it such a real, it's such a big swing, and yet it feels completely true to the guy he's playing. And I love that moment so much. I it's my yeah, favorite it's moment in the entire film. It's so good, and he's so good, and it's so close to being absolutely terrible. But he he nails it. He's just going at a ten. He knows what he's doing too. He's about to become the world's most famous hunk, and here here there's like nothing to lose really. And he's just delivering it. It feels almost hammer horror y. Yeah, he's he's got a decent career ahead of him, I think, that Paul Rudd, you know? Mm-hmm. And he looks exactly the same. It's like, fucking freaky. It's point. weird. Like, we're gonna have to start asking some tough questions in about five years. It's like, the be- Druids. Sorry. <laughs> it, it should he, always be the Druids. That man, it, it's like him and Jennifer Lopez. They're baby they're mm-hmm. There's totally baby's mm-hmm. blood involved, all right? Yes, there, yes. Elizabeth Bathory has helped both of these with their skincare routines. 100%. Like, there's there's no other way around. And that's fine, because they look great. Um, and that's so funny. Yeah, there's some... 
this movie is really good, really beautiful. Okay, so that scene where John Strode finds, I believe, someone's head in a, or not someone's head, but like bloody clothing in a like machine, like a laundry machine. Yeah. Had me thinking, like, that's a trope. Like, there's so many horror movies, and it's usually a head where someone finds like a body part or bloodiness or like a head in a laundry machine and then a die immediately after do you do are you is what i'm saying resonating well i mean there is kind of a range there because on the one hand you have my bloody valentine where somebody hears a thumping in a dryer yes or a washer and they open it up and it is a head and it's creepy and it's awesome and it's even better in the unrated cut of that film but then you have the flip side of that where (laughs) where you have a dryer that's making a thumping sound and the character moves up to it and they open it and they hold their hands out expectantly and their tennis shoes fly right into Brandy's hands. And I still, what you did still know what you did last summer. Uh, that's amazing. And uh, so, you know, I appreciate both. I appreciate both. Uh, you know, just that's uh, so funny. First of all, I, I genuinely thank you for the, I, I still know what you did last summer reference. There needs to be more of them. Um, movies a blast and I'm gonna give you one more example I feel like there's a similar scene in Identity that is sort of basing a lot of my opinion on ooh that's a good movie Uh, that's a movie that nobody talks about now that is a movie that I agree nobody talks about where is Identity 2 baby Identity Harder are you busy yeah you're busy well I I mean given the end of the first movie she's probably not that busy Um, no that's true I feel like none of them are um, you know what? It also it reminds me of another movie that no one ever talks about, Suspect Zero. That's what no one talks about, right? That is a very good movie. The uh, the long distance viewing, the psychic, Ben Kingsley, creepy battle. I saw it in the theaters with my dad. I feel like no one else was there because no one else has seen that movie but you and me and my dad. But I love it. Yeah, and a buddy of mine. Uh, he, I remember <laughs> Carrie Ann Moss vehicle. Sorry. Yeah, and Aaron Eckhart. I mean. It- I, I love it. There should have been a follow-up. I understand why there wasn't, but there should have been. Uh, weirdly enough, from the director of uh, was it E. Elias Marriage, the guy who did, uh, I think it was either Begotten or Misbegotten, and he also did Shadow of the Vampire, mm. the movie about the making of Nosferatu. Well, that I know. Okay, so this is a, a art house uh, Arthur over here. Yeah, yeah, and they got him to do their big studio serial killer movie. And what's great about it is that movie could have been crass and commercial and yet another ripoff of Silence of the Lambs a decade after its relevancy. And because they brought that guy in, he made it something special. Totally. It kind of feels pre-Zodiac, kind of. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. God, Zodiac's a great one. I would say Zodiac has one of the... No, the scariest murder scene, I think, for me... In any movie, which is the by the river or by the lake sequence. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tying it's them up too and... realistic. I think, <sighs> I don't know, I haven't seen it in so long, partially because of that scene, but I think it's one of the most realistic, like, slayings I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, and it's it's just, I, I think what's so scary about it is it's nonchalance. You know, oh. it's just... It, <laughs> too scary! That is, that is a masterpiece of a film. Um, yeah, yeah. it truly is. Oh, I and- mean... I feel like, wow, we've really covered a lot of terrain. I'm really proud of us. This and we, was And we chaos. haven't even gotten to Scott Spiegel's take yet. Oh my god, yes, of course, which is sort of what I'm most excited about, and which I have the least information on, because I'm kind of relying on your knowledge here. 
So should we move on to the Scott Spiegel world of it all? Let's do it. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, I am too. So do you want to give us, if you can, like a bit of a reminder of how Scott Spiegel got involved, which is through Tarantino, but then like how we got to his sort of iteration through Rosenberg's? Yes. So by this point, um, Mustafa Akkad had sold off the distribution rights. Uh, He sold the distribution rights off the Miramax uh, for Dimension Films, you know, uh, Miramax's genre arm. They were doing all of their horror and sci-fi stuff and whatnot. And by this point in the project's history, Tarantino had already made Reservoir Dogs. He had already made Pulp Fiction. And From Dusk Till Dawn was not that far off in the future. So Miramax, who had a relationship with Tarantino, obviously, asked him and his producing partner, Lawrence Bender, if they knew of a director who would be a good fit for Halloween 6. And they both suggested the same guy, Scott Spiegel, who was known for, I believe he co-wrote Evil Dead 2. He did a great slasher movie called intruder which if you've never seen it that movie is so much fun i haven't seen it oh it's so good it's so good and um it is it is like pure grindhouse but winking and nodding to the audience and just having fun but also has just marvelous practical effects the kills in the movie are insane is this before evil dead 2 yeah yeah it's right around the same time in fact one of the main characters well, I wouldn't say main characters. One of the side characters, rather, is played by Sam Raimi. <gasps> Love it. Yeah, and Ted Raimi figures into it, too. Um, they were cuties back in the day. Yeah. Sorry about it. They really were. I got you. Like uh, weird cuties, but that's my type. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Intruder was awesome. Bob Weinstein screened Intruder, and from that point was like totally on board with Spiegel as the choice to direct Halloween 6. So that was kind of like, you know, Dimensions input at this point as distributor. And of course, it being the Weinsteins, they were all about trying to force their uh, <laughs> their choices on, yep. on the filmmakers. Uh, so even though yep. they were only there to distribute the movie, uh, I just did a recent Phantom Limbs on a, what would have been the fourth Crow movie. It was going to be the Crow Lazarus, which would have starred DMX and Eminem. And it was the same. I remember. I, I remember. That's awesome. It, it was the, you know, it's the same damn story where it's like, you know, the crow belongs to Edward Pressman and Miramax. They were only like the distributors. That's, that's all. But the way the deal was worked out, like they had this weird kind of veto power where it's like, yeah, you can go ahead and make your movie, but if it's not what we want to make, then we'll just release your movie in one theater and it'll make $20,000 and fuck you. And so I'm guessing that's kind of the same thing that happened with Halloween because Again, they're just distributors, and yet here they are bringing a director to the table, uh, you know, for Mustafa Akkad and company to sort of approve. And so, you know, with Spiegel being Weinstein's choice, and I should mention here, I I was able to speak to uh, Scott Spiegel in an interview last year, nicest guy, and told me loads of, like, really cool stuff. Um, He mentioned that at this point, he and Tarantino might have thrown around some ideas, but uh, because it, to me, I was still like under the assumption that it was all one big project. Like Tarantino was going to write it and Spiegel was going to direct it. And again, that's not really the case. Like Tarantino was approached years prior. He came up with a little bit of a take, but it never went through. And then they went to Rosenberg. And then from Rosenberg, we get to Scott Spiegel. So when Spiegel was in the mix, he and Tarantino, he said, might've batted around some ideas, But ultimately, Scott Spiegel was given Rosenberg's beat sheets, you know, kind of noting like what the story was 
you know, in little bullet points. And Spiegel took the ideas from Rosenberg's beat sheets that he and the producers had liked. And then he kind of, you know, he came up with his own take. He made his own notes on the story. At that point, he was given Rosenberg's full draft, which, uh, <laughs> which he did not care for. Uh, he commented on it in an interview with Fangorio, uh, apparently when he didn't realize that he was on the record and he really, hmm. really, just really well, knocking the I hell read out. it. Yeah, oh yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Rosenberg later responded in a letter that was published in Fango 151 that I mentioned in the Postal Zone where he, uh, oh, he I read that too. Oh yeah. He was, he was, he was unhappy. Uh, he, so he, rude about Intruder, by the way. So sassy. He, he was, but he was hurt. You know, um, but he, <laughs> he and hurt people, hurt people. Exactly. He he took a few pot shots in uh, in return, and um, so this but he part- did say he he liked Evil Dead too, which was funny. Yeah, yeah, but it was kind of like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I might have liked Evil Dead too, but it was probably all Raimi. You know, it's like yeah, you 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 get that feeling from his uh, his feeling, but you know, Scott Spiegel doesn't need to prove himself to anyone. He's he's awesome, but um, you know, at this point, like Tarantino wasn't involved in the story and according to Spiegel he likely only ever would have been a producer if anything on this version it was never well I won't say never but he said it wouldn't necessarily have been something like Quentin Tarantino presents Halloween 6 you know it wasn't going to be that. I know and I so badly want to title this episode Quentin Tarantino presents Halloween 6 do but it. I can't do it because it literally was quoted that that's exactly what it wasn't <laughs> you should do that and then just let people wonder let let them get to this point in the podcast where they're like uh-huh the and, and say gotcha exactly <laughs> oops yeah that let, may happen guys Sorry. Go, ahead, go ahead and do that right now go ahead and just turn right into your mic and just like gotcha gotcha bitches sorry <laughs> love it you know what that's how i feel love it um so spiegel came up with his take uh you know there was the possibility of bringing on uh, graveyard shift screenwriter john esposito graveyard shift yeah. the Stephen king adaptation not the uh the vampire in a cab movie um and so that was kind of i'm over. sorry i thought it was the rats one wow the, the, yeah no it is it's the stephen king one and not the vampire one Oh, um, okay. I'm so confused, and now I'm less confused. Thank you. No, <laughs> and so, and according to him, like he was told that he might have even been given the option to write the thing as well as you know just directing it as well. But the last hurdle that he had to sort of uh, make was meeting with Mustafa Akkad, and Spiegel. He he noted that Akkad wanted his own guy, whereas he was Bob Weinstein's guy. You know, but he was given the thumbs up though. And he, this is so sad. Like he was given the thumbs up. He had a celebratory dinner and Luzon Franks, like, you know, because, Hey, I'm directing Halloween six and, you know, take everybody out, buy them dinner. Like we're going to celebrate. And then like 48 hours later, his approval was pulled and it's like, fuck. rough. Like that's tough. Spiegel said, he, so dimension films though. They're well, just that, that's the thing. So that, it, evil. It wasn't them. Uh, they were all about him. It was it was actually Mustafa oh. Akkad. Um, right. Sorry. It's always one or the other. Because those <laughs> Dimension and Akkad clearly did not have a good relationship. And they no. were always, like, yeah, they were always in dick battles. Which I don't, at that point, like, I don't blame Mustafa Akkad because he could probably tell, like, I understand him not trusting Dimension at that point. I wish he had trusted Spiegel, but I get it, you know? Um, yeah, it's Weinstein country, for fuck's sake. Yeah, that fucking guy. But, um... <laughs> both of them really from what i've read and heard uh, i know and isn't it sad that everything we ever have to write or talk about they come up 
Like every development hell story, you have to talk about them to some degree and it's it's rough. It's funny, I just did an interview with somebody and we talked about that. I was like, you know what? I I it, the Weinsteins come up so much because they developed so many fucking movies that they never made. They threw so much cash around developing these movies that never were. And it's like, it's great for me as a writer, you know, but it sucks for me as a film fan, like reading all these movies that could have been that never were because these guys couldn't settle on a fucking take. I know some days I, I I don't know if you worry about this, but some days I'm like, am I going to run out of development hell stories? But then other days I'm like, no, I'm, yeah no i hear you well the problem is is like not only you know the first hurdle you have to make is finding out that they were meant to exist in the first place and then the second hurdle is tracking down the people who had anything to do with it and then the third hurdle has nothing to do with you which is you know the people agreeing to talk about it in the first place and i've i i had to sort of grow a thick skin you know, I had to get beyond that at a certain point as a guy who really wanted to tell like every possible story that I could run across because there are some people who just don't want to talk about it. Like it's whether it's painful or whether they feel it would hurt their career or if they're just too damn busy, you know? So I've, mm-hmm. I've gotten better over the course of the past year or so just being like, okay, all right. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time, you know, and just moving on. Mm-hmm, I um, get that. I will say the other heartbreak with writing like, articles on movies that never were is finally landing an interview and then finding out there's nothing of any substance to it. Like that's yeah. like getting, getting all of the stars to align. And then you get to that point. It's like, okay, let's dive in. What is there to say? Yeah. Like three minutes later, you're just like, is that it? Is that, I find that on this topic, talking to people like you or, or fans, of the works in general make for much more interesting episodes than actually talking to the creatives themselves, which sometimes is amazing, no doubt. But talking to the people that care and like fantasize and romanticize the stuff, I always get good conversations out of them. Yeah. And that's what I love about this podcast is that you do invite on people to sort of talk about, because that's the thing. I mean, my article series is all about, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, and this sounds like a weird lofty goal, but I swear it's uh, why I'm doing it. It's like, I see it like horror archeology, span you know, I'm trying to find and uncover as much as I can. And I preserve as much as I can. And sometimes that's going to be every possible scrap of information, every beat of the story that would have been told. It's going to be like this 8,000 word, you know, story, like a massive article. And then sometimes it, it, it's not going to be, you know, there's no grand story behind why it came about, mm-hmm. why it didn't happen. And for example, it's- one just went up this past week about, uh, honestly, a, a movie that I thought was going to be like this. It, it was a huge find for me. I found mention of it in an old star log and it was, a uh, it was a movie called Phantom, which was going to be the Phantom of the Opera updated to world war ii era nazi occupied france directed written by the writer of fatal attraction directed by wolfgang fucking peterson what and i tracked down the writer and i was like oh my goodness this is going to be amazing and then i spoke with him and he was like you know 
oh, yeah, I was brought in because there was another writer and he had a take and Wolfgang wanted me. So I came in and wrote it. And, uh, you know, they wanted Dustin Hoffman and Dustin Hoffman didn't really want to do it. So the project fell apart. And that's pretty much it. And the story would have been basically the Phantom of the Opera that you all know and love, except it would have had Nazis in it. And that's pretty much oh it. And I'm like, yeah, been there. Is that it? <laughs> is that really? If you forget that you're talking to this is just people working. This is just their day job in a way for some people. Yeah. And, and for us, it, it's so much more sacred. So yeah, oh, really. I, for me, I, it's I, like, I understand that. You know, I, every time I interview somebody, I'm just like, tell me a story, you know, make me dream. Yeah, uh, totally. And as I said earlier, like, I really believe it. What you're doing is like really journalism. And it's like, it, it's totally, I see it as totally different from this, which is like, you know, talk show energy. And that's what I enjoy doing. But Phantom Limbs is like really journalism. It's, it's really well done. And if you guys have not had a chance to check it out, absolutely go over to bloody disgusting and, and read everything because if you like this podcast like you're gonna eat that column up yeah oh gosh i appreciate it thank you so much i uh you know i'm keen on anything that regards the sort of uh you know this corner of the genre you know like unmade sequels remakes movies and whatnot i mean there and plus i will say there seems to be in recent years you know ever since um i want to say like jodorowsky's dune came out where mm-hmm. people realize, hey, there are all these stories that were never told. Let's find out more about them. And now we have, uh, you know, we have the best movies never made. We have your podcast. We have my column. Uh, there was uh, Joshua Hull's book that came out earlier this year. There was Dave Alexander's book, Untold Horror, which came out through Dark Horse that long ago. You know, I, I love that. And plus to me, like, there was Taking Shape 2 that came out last year that was specifically about unmade Halloween oh, I read movies. a chapter out of that today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, I, to me, and I, you know, I've, I've seen this a little bit sometimes, like there's a, a little bit of, there's a kind of like Territorialism to it. Or, yeah. A little bit, a little, but to me, like, and, and, and by the way, I, I will say this, I've never gotten that from you whatsoever. Um, <laughs> but to me, I'm just like the more the merrier. Like let, let there, you know, let's all write an article on Halloween six. You know what I mean? Let, let's, let's, I'm surprised all... not everyone wants to like, to me, it's just like, well, why wouldn't you? This is the most interesting thing in the whole world. Exactly. Yeah. And so to me, I, and plus, you know, for example, like taking shape Two. uh, you know, there was so much great stuff in that book. And then, you know, I covered for my own reasons, obviously I told you about my connection with Halloween six. So of course, if I was going to do like an October themed Halloween run, you know, uh, of course, Halloween six was going to be one of them. I'd interviewed Todd Farmer before. So of course, Halloween 3d was going to come up, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. and so all of those were kind of based on that. And Jake Wade wall came up because I'd approached him cool. about, uh, you know, when yep. a stranger returns, uh, and he was, nice. I found he also out, did Halloween, right? Yeah, he did. Uh, so his Halloween was Halloween, the missing years. And that literally yes. came across the, I had no idea that he had written it. I had reached out to him about when a stranger returns, which was the uh, sequel to the, when a stranger calls remake. And so mm-hmm. literally I kid you not, somebody had emailed me like, Hey, you should really do an article on Halloween, the missing years written by Jake Wade wall, the guy who blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what the fuck I'm interviewing yeah. him like three days from now. And so I cool. literally, when I hopped online with him, I'm like, sir, I know that we're talking about when a stranger returns today, but can you set aside a little bit of time to talk about your Halloween too, please? And so uh-huh. that's how all my articles came about. And it's funny, like 
for example, reading my Halloween, the missing years from him, he told me a lot about its development, but none of its story. But if you pick up taking shape Two, they have loads of stuff about his screenplay and like what the story would have been mm-hmm. in there. And it's like, that doesn't make me sad. That makes me happy that it does exist, you know? And it's the same thing with like, you know, obviously they talk about Halloween six, 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 and they do a full breakdown of Phil Rosenberg's draft and they have an interview with Rosenberg, which is awesome. Uh, I didn't mm-hmm. even know how to find the man, you know? Uh, but He's the flip in the Celtic dimension. Yeah, exactly. I needed to use my VR apparatus to contact yeah. him. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, but you know, but the flip side of that is is that I got to interview Scott Spiegel, and Spiegel fa- had found his notes, like his handwritten notes, which uh, we can dive into here in a second if you want, like some of the stuff that he would have done. Oh, absolutely, absolutely would. And so, but as it, a result, yeah. like I have some stuff that they don't, and they have some stuff that I don't. And what I love about that is, like, that doesn't make me feel competitive. That doesn't piss me off that somebody like scooped me or something like that. I'm like, no, the the info is out there. That's amazing. Now, and thank God because I am not here to provide good information i'm here to provide infotainment and so the more the more research out there that i can get the better so yeah thank you to both of you can i suggest instead of infotainment that you change it to dangertainment oh this is dangertainment <laughs> if, who has a dangertainment t-shirt because i have to find out how to get one uh my uh i will ask him for you my uh hammer pub co-host paul farrell <laughs> Uh, knows that I despise Halloween Resurrection. And so in a group message tonight with myself and Ali Chapel, our uh, Hammer Pub co-host, he posted a pic of himself wearing a Dangertainment shirt telling me it was Fuck just yeah. for me. And I was like, you're, you're blessed. You're, you're booked and you're blessed because what a friend. What a friend. I also want to say Ali Chapel, Canadian queen. We know her and we love her. I love Ali. She's awesome. Uh, she is one hell of a filmmaker. Uh, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to see her short film yet. Um, I haven't. I've only seen her acting. I've never seen her her um, filmmaking. So, okay. So she made a short film that is, and it's always weird, you know, talking up like your friend's work. It's like, because inevitably oh, no. you, you, the, the people you're talking to, you're like, are they going to believe me that my opinion is genuine? Or do they think I'm saying this just because... You know, no, because it's like mom or like you're, you're seeing us in rose colored glasses and that's beautiful too. Exactly. Uh, but if anybody knows me pretty well, they know that I'm not that dude. Like I'll be honest, uh, not, not oh. mean spirited, but I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be straightforward. I'll be honest. Okay, and I will say to know. her short film is genuinely fantastic. Like it's very well made, very well directed, very well acted. Is um, it in the, in the, is it in the ecosystem or is it in the festivals? Like what's the deal with it? It just played, I want to say it played, uh, the Salem fest that just, oh, that's where my short film premiered Salem yes, horror yeah. fest. Shout out. So it played there. I don't know when it's going to become available to view or when, but she is yeah, working on her first feature, which I believe is called malediction. And she is, I believe she wrote it. She's directing it and she is starring in it too. So she's Good. wearing all the hats and, uh, Honestly, I am genuinely giddy to see it. I think she's going to kill it. So, oh yeah, and 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 she's like a well-known name in in the little horror sphere, and we support everything she does. So, Ali, good luck to you. We're gonna we're hopefully gonna be able to see that short sometime soon. Absolutely. All right. Well, should we should we do it? Should we? I'm ready. We talk about uh, my bot's ready. I don't know about you, I but I feel it. All right. Well, I should say at this point in the background, it's it's kind of like perfectly setting the mood. I have a. Uh, Michael Myers power walking down a uh, 
<laughs> down a quarter. And he is. You gotta a- keep fit. You gotta keep fit, and you gotta do it the way that you gotta do it. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned keeping fit because it is so obviously a different Michael than the one that's in the rest of the film, who's a little, okay. who's a little bulkier. You know, he's uh, <laughs> Mike's had a couple of cheeseburgers like earlier. Yeah, in the film, yeah. But- I, he's in a basement. He, it's it, you know, there's not a lot of place to do your calisthenics, so I understand. <laughs> but no, he's he's looking trim and fit, and he is a power walking son of a bitch at this point in the movie. But um. Yeah, so Spiegel, okay, at this point, he said he thought as though Mustafa Akkad didn't feel as though he was the right director from the project. So that was that was kind of it for him, unfortunately. And then from that point, we eventually make our way to Daniel Farron's Joe Chappell version, or Joe Chappell, rather, version. Scott Spiegel was kind enough to dig up a bunch of notes that he had made it around that time while he was working on his own take. And, you know, he was working from Rosenberg's draft. He was taking ideas from it. He was melding them with his own. And, um, you know, we had a conversation where he sort of, you know, he dove into them and he said it was basically like a beat sheet in the making. It was just kind of like miscellaneous notes and ideas, A to B to C, assorted notes along the line. he said it didn't really have anything to do with the earlier draft per se, other than having Michael and Loomis. Uh, there's no virtual reality. There's no, uh, no portal, no Lovecraftian craziness going on. Um, he just, he wanted to streamline it and ground it. And uh, apparently his opened with, so you remember at the end of Halloween five, we have Michael Myers being broken out of jail by uh, the man in black, right? I don't know if you remember, in the producer's cut of Halloween 6, there is a quick flashback where Jamie is kidnapped as well. But before she is, she sees, like, the man in black and a weird group basically loading Michael into the back of a van, right? So, apparently Spiegel hit upon that idea, and he had this opening sequence where Michael was broken out, he was loaded into a van by several guards, He's being transported and he basically, he crashes the car. He gets the hell out. You know, he, uh, he breaks free from these chains that he's in. He grabs a guy by the neck and I'm reading directly from his notes here, lifts him up, shoves his head through the top of a vehicle, crunch. The guard angles helplessly. Myers grabs the other guard, slams him into another guard, pushes them through the back door. The other guard with his head through the roof sees a sign. And then he alluded to the fact that the sign likely, Well, he says, well, the guard loses his head in the most gruesome of ways, and then the vehicle crashes and explodes. So from that point, after Michael crashes the car and gets the hell out, he is apprehended and he's thrown into prison. And there's actually a prison montage. Like Michael Myers is, again, I'm quoting. Oh my God, really? I love it. I (laughs) love it. Mike in prison. Quote, there's a prison montage. Quote, Michael Myers is stripped of his personal belongings, including his mask. From this point on, we see everything from Myers' point of view only. Michael is then fingerprinted, hosed down, and thrown into a cell. Then there's a courtroom scene. The trial of Michael Myers. Loomis argues his case... (laughs) Myers is beyond psychiatric help. The beast must die. LOL. (laughs) Which I love. Now, something that he did pull, obviously, from the Rosenberg draft, we are then introduced to Dana, noted here as the last living blood relative of Michael Myers. Um, We open with her having a nightmare and, quote, she's dreaming of dead Myers relatives in the cemetery. It's her turn to join them, her destiny. She falls into an open grave. Michael appears above her, shovel in hand, and begins burying her alive. 
that to me sounds a hell of a lot like a sequence in Rob Zombie's Halloween Two. Yeah. Uh, so like creepily so, but uh, yes, it does. But I dig that. So I'm not, it's also I'm not... a lot like Halloween 3D, including the name Dana and the burial stuff, which is interesting. Yeah, like it's funny in reading all these disparate versions of Halloween, not just this one, not just Halloween Six, but going throughout the entire franchise. Like how many times ideas sort of recur, whether or not there's any connection between creators well, or not. I mean, they own it, right? Like. Like the Akkads and and Miramax, like they own all of these Bibles and all of these outlines and all of these scripts. So like it makes sense that Tommy from Six 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 is similar to Tommy from The Curse of Michael Myers. Like I get it totally, yeah. And um, so apparently, like all of this is just uh, a prelude uh, because he notes that at this point it's like credits. Carving jack-o'-lantern, blood oozes from orifices. One year later, Halloween Eve, we are introduced to the new Haddonfield. The Michael Myers case has proven very lucrative, and I love this idea. The town is like a macabre graceland, and Halloween is Elvis's birthday. I love that. I love that that's, so much. That's the vibe. I, I like that, too. Media people have set up camp. It's the 30th anniversary of the initial murders, and we set up a guy named Miles Anthony from Inside Source. Then it's interior prison, Michael being strapped to the chair. They're going to fry his ass, and then the power goes out in prison. Obviously, there's a prison break. And (laughs) Spiegel started to describe the sequence, and then he was like, I'm not going to tell you what happens next. I might use it in another movie. But there's a lot of action in this darkened prison at night. He kills everybody, escapes, and he's going back to Haddonfield to join in the 30th anniversary of the murders. Hell yeah. Now, at this point, so Michael's headed back. Haddonfield's going to have this big blowout, 30th anniversary Halloween party. He brought Loomis back into the proceedings, which I think is kind of cool. He's not just like a one-scener anymore. He's an active player. He's hanging around. He's tracking Myers down. He's kind of doing his Sam Loomis thing. And uh, again, he's reading directly from his notes. Michael's on his way to Haddonfield, picked up by the people on their way to a big party in a pickup truck. One of the kids tries to jokingly pull off Myers' mask, and Myers wipes them all out. Now, that was one version of the traveling scene. There was a variation that he described that I actually thought was much cooler. That finds Michael basically boarding a train to get back to Haddonfield. And again, quote, he is a ghostly passenger seated by himself. At the first stop, a slew of Michael Myers get on board, drinking and carousing. All partiers headed to the anniversary party in Haddonfield. A female Michael Myers, Michelle Myers, sits on his lap. Finally, they all begin removing their masks, all except dot, dot, dot. Next stop, Michael exits the train. This other passenger steps aboard and immediately screams. Michael has wiped out the slew of imposters. So that at that mm-hmm. point, there was you know a pretty solid idea of what his movie was going to be. And then he had to admit at this point that his notes began getting like skimpier and skimpier they were growing increasingly sparse um but he was a busy girl yeah <laughs> he noted uh myers stalks unsuspecting dana big set piece including loomis and a sheriff where everyone and i love this realizes the tricks are up and people are dying myers is on the <laughs> rampage everyone in town panics and um so at this point one of the heroes kills or all the heroes kills someone in a shape mask thinking it was michael And he noted, so this is how Act 3 starts off. Haddonfield is deserted. It's midnight. Loomis has an autopsy done to make sure they really got Myers, but Myers is alive. We get into some cemetery shenanigans. There's a cemetery climax, some missing coffins, some missing headstones. Loomis, sheriff, boyfriend. 
Showdown at the cemetery. Loomis uses weapons in his wheelchair to thwart the shape. And I love that. I love that Loomis has a tricked out <laughs> weaponized he wheelchair. He would. He really would. Uh, Loomis's last stand. The shape escapes. His bloody mask on the spike of the cemetery fence is all that remains. Dana and Loomis are the last people standing. Epilogue. The surviving sheriff talks with Dana after the climax. He tells her he has some troubling news. As it turns out, the autopsy that was done when they weren't certain that they had killed the real shape ultimately revealed that the body was that of Michael Myers. Dana looks ill. Then who was wearing that mask and doing the rest of the killing? At that same moment, in the window in the background, we see a figure wearing a Michael Myers mask. He stares silently at Dana, cut to black. And when I said, like, there are recurring ideas when it comes to, uh, you know, the various unmade Halloweens, this idea of a second shape pops up over and over and over again in various versions. Um, I think the Scott... It's, it's scary, yeah. It, well, totally, because it's like, well, what the hell is it? You know, it's... Uh, yeah. There was, uh, oh, I think there was like the Two Faces of Evil, which you can read about in Taking Shape 2, that talks oh, about I two have. shapes. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the Scott Malam version, the guy who wrote um, Mother's Day, uh, which is a damn uh-huh. movie, he did a Platinum Dunes pitch uh, about two traumatized boys who grow up. And there is a shape, and the shape is basically attacking people, but the shape is attacking people in two separate places. And it turns out that there are two shapes doing the killing at the same time. And one is malignant. Yeah. Well, (laughs) uh, one is Michael Myers and one is Michael Myers, like childhood friend. And I I don't know if I have this right or not, but I want to think that Michael Myers actually dies at the end of it. And so the remaining shape is like this other kid, which I wait, Michael dies at the end of one of these movies. He'll be back, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but that's pretty much it. That was, that was the Spiegel take and uh you know again it basically existed as notes but um i don't know i think it would have been a lot of fun i love the halloween six that we have but at the same time you know i'm I'm greedy i i kind of wish we had gotten the spiegel halloween six as well i am too i want to if you know if we had a alternate reality machine this is all i would do is just go see all the different alternate halloween movies yes this would be my number one priority a hundred percent uh i you know I would love to do a line of comic books based off of like, I I would love in my wildest dreams, there would be a phantom limbs line of comic books that in some way bring these stories to life. That's a really good idea, Jinx. And it's not impossible to make it happen down the line. I, I, I love it. I mean, this happened comic books and graphic novels has salvaged so many of our development. Hell, um misfits like freddy versus jason 2 stuff like that like it's a really beautiful way to be able to get these stories back uh, uh, behind the mask before really the mask well. yeah totally like before was that the mask, great yeah. have you read that i haven't but i have to the first one sold out if i'm not mistaken oh re- um i know they've done multiple printings so it might be possible to uh okay i'm sure it's not that hard to find i'd i'd love to because i'm a huge fan it is honestly it is so damn good I would recommend you almost not read it simply because you, you'll be sad that it's not a movie, but at the same time, you'll be so happy that you get to experience any version of that story. So go ahead and do read it because it is, it's so, I got it. It's so gotta. damn good. It's so damn good. 
I love those characters. I love those movies. Uh, we did an episode on it not long ago. Um, I remember. I'm, I listened. I'm, just, I'm just such a big fan. Um, that Scott Spiegel stuff was truly hella fascinating. We're so lucky that we had you here with your knowledge. We all, like I, My favorite episodes are the Jinx episodes. This is not a lie. I, I, um, I'm happy to come back anytime. Oh, I, I joke about this all the time. Not even joke. I'm like, how do I get him to co-host? How do I get us there? <laughs> so just know there's a long con in, with you involved. And just be be wary. Be wary. Be wary. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I'm, I'm cool Jinx, where, where can we find you in the universe? How, how do we find you? How do we support you? Okay, before I say that, I got to ask, are we not going to do the... Uh, the traditional is this movie going to happen wrap up, or are we just you assuming know, that I it's want definitely to. not going I, to? I, I haven't known how to do that with these Halloween movies, but let's <laughs> fucking do it. Let's do it because why not? Because what we say goes. So yeah, Jinx. Well, what are we going to do? Are we saying Spiegel's six? My dog's freaking out. Are we saying are, which one are we going with? Yeah, let's do the Spiegel. I think Spiegel. Okay. Jinx, is there a shot in hell? None whatsoever. <laughs> not even a little. Not even in development. How? No. No. no you I, know what? No I, no I, I will say this. Um, if I get my dream to come true, and there is a Phantom Limbs line of comic books, I will beg and plead with Malika Khan to allow us to do Scott Spiegel's Halloween Six because I think the world needs it. Fuck yes. And can we also get Retribution? Oh fuck yeah. As many as Civil War. Yeah. Let's do all of them. They don't all, actually, they don't all need to be done. But let's do most of them. I would totally, I would unabashedly <gasps> love to see Halloween 3D realized in some I was way. just going to say, can we do a pop-up book? Oh, pop, or, uh, no, do the, uh, what do you think about doing like a traditional uh, anaglyph, like red, blue lens 3D comic yes, book? Yes, Halloween yes, yes. It's the only way. It's the only, it's the only solution is that. Yes, I'm excited. I love that. This is going to happen. <laughs> I am too. Um, I support this journey. Okay, so it's it's a no. Yeah, it's a no for me too. This this franchise has been rebooted and rebooted way too many times. It, you know, but who knows what's going to happen in the future with Halloween? I I think Halloween is going to exist in some shape or form forever. I see what you did there, and I appreciate it. And I yeah, really only have one word to say to you after concerning that, John. 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 John, uh, we love you, John. And your music's so good. You're like David Lynch. Doesn't matter what you do with film, your music is always going to be excellent. He's incredible. He really is. I wish, I kind of hope that he has a second life as a guy who just scores films, you know? Yeah, me too. Sacred Bones Records, how lucky are they? Oh, no doubt. And, but I will say at the same time, like, the Ward as your last film, like that's your mic drop, John. It can't be. It can't be. It, it, he's got to. He's Cody and him got to team up, make something to be the final, to the final girl. Because that, that doesn't, that doesn't hold up. We need one more. We need one more film from him. Where you know, even if his last movie had been like Cigarette Burns for Masters of Horror, that would have been. That wouldn't have been that bad, I yeah, think. No, it would have been okay. Would have been, you know, that would be a better mic drop than Ghost of Mars. But then he went and did Pro Life and uh, The Ward and fucked things up again. So. I never saw Pro Life, but I, I trust you. I trust you, and I, I don't trust John. You don't need to. See. <laughs> oh, Johnny boy, um, we're grateful and we love you. And the the score for Halloween Kills is sounding incredible. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, okay, oh. Jinx, I have to say it again. How do we support you? How do we find you? How do we give you our money? Um, well, uh, you can find my writing at Bloody Disgusting. I write Phantom Limbs, which again is about, uh, you know, unproduced horror sequels and remakes. I write a column called Larval Inc. That's all about uh, wildly different initial versions of movies. Uh, I've done a few of those. Uh, like, for example, I looked at Chimera, which was a thriller that eventually became the movie Ghost Ship, you know, and changed wildly. Uh, one of cool. them was... Uh, that I'm kind of proud of. I, I got to talk with Darren Lynn Bowsman about his screenplay, The Departed, which was eventually adapted into Saw 2, and the differences plot-wise between those yep. are massive, and so on and so forth. I know, uh, that, I that's a, a bizarre, that's a bizarre uh, legacy there, for sure. I know, I wish he would get to make The Departed, and he, from the sounds of it, he wants to, and I hope that happens. Um, it's a filmmaker dream, though, to, like, uh, some some contract... Thing that your your agent managed to squeeze get, let you direct saw too very cool absolutely and just let the man direct leprechaun already it's ridiculous he shouldn't have to bet i i know <laughs> i know crazy uh i do mask of insanity which is all about talking to actors and actresses who have been behind masks or latex and horror films basically talking about how they got the roles their overall thoughts <laughs> on them and then basically talking about like the craziest or funniest stories they can relate uh, about the times they were on set. And it's, it's, it's fun. It's fluffy, but uh, I have a lot of fun. Did you ever get Tim Curry? It. Not yet. For, Not yet. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, for Legend? Oh, yeah. Or It. You know, I'd, I'd be happy with either. <laughs> or hell, Frankenfurter. Give me Rocky Horror. Really War. anything he's ever done, <laughs> truly. He's the damn best. Um, and then uh, I have one called Blood Ink Staples, which is all about uh, horror comics that people need to be reading. And then uh, Good title. You can find me at ScreamAnnex.com. Uh, you can find the, uh, the, the, the the podcast, which again is currently doing a side project called Hammer Pub, which is all about Hammer Horror Films and has myself, Ali Chapel, and Paul Farrell drinking and providing Hammer commentaries. And from the sounds of it, Josh, you're going to be a guest in the future. You're going to do the woman I in better black. be. I keep hinting. How long can I hint? God, okay, God, you, no, you, you are welcome as soon as you would like, but I will definitely at least set aside the woman in black for you. Yeah, give me woman in black. That's the one I want. Rock on. All right. Otherwise, you can find me on social media. I'm uh, on Twitter. That's at Jinx1981, J-I-N-X-1981. You can also find me at Scream Addicts. And, uh, hell, I'm on Instagram. You can find me, uh, that's at Jinx740941. I am sorry for all the damn numbers. He does uh, not want to be found, people. He is Laurie Strode, tw- 2018. <laughs> 740941 is my version of calling myself Carrie Tate. <laughs> Did you say Carrie Tate? Yeah, I love that. Yes. I love a Carrie Tate reference. Jeez Louise. Where's the Carrie Tate multiverse? Thank you, Jinx. Excellent. Rock on. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back with another episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.